Let's pray together before you have a seat. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today as we come to hear from it. Would you and you only truly be first in our heart? Would you speak to our hearts now? Open our eyes, convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement. Help us to follow you by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What does God want? What does the Lord want with us or from us? This question is at the heart of basically all religious, spiritual, or theological pursuits. It's one of the, the main reasons why we would even come here today, attend church, or study scripture, or do good works in life, either to learn what he wants or to actually try to do what he, we think he wants. After all, if you don't know or do what your creator wants, you not only violate his will, but you also can easily miss your entire purpose in life, your reason for existence. So what is it? What does God want from us? What does he want from you more than anything? Today we're going to look together at the very heart of the law that God gave his people. Now this is a very ancient law, and so I'd be of a mind to say that it doesn't matter anymore, except that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, says that it still matters. He says, in fact, that this heart of the law matters more than anything else in all of life. Now, the last chapter that we studied in Deuteronomy, chapter 5, gave us the Ten Commandments. And you might think, well, wouldn't those be, or those include, at least some of the most important ones? Well, almost. They provide an excellent summary of the law, and, and they are extremely important. But there is one even greater commandment. One that undergirds them all, even those Big Ten. And one that outlasts the Old Covenant and remains the heart of the New Covenant that we have in Christ. So to see this vital, central word, let's turn together to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. What better place to begin the new year than with the most important command of all? Remember that Deuteronomy was a series of final sermons from Moses before he entered, before he died and Israel entered the promised land without him. So he had these final words for them. And since the, the whole generation of Israelites died in the wilderness while wandering the wilderness, Moses felt the need to remind their kids and their grandkids of what was up. So he began by reminding them of their recent history, what God had done to save them. But he also talked about how they had repeatedly failed and fallen short. They failed to trust God. They forfeited his promises. And he's going to spend the rest of the book now talking about God's law, reminding them of God's law for them. But remember, these were a lot more than just laws. These were covenant stipulations we saw like marriage vows, wedding vows. They, they formed a backbone 
of the new covenant that God was making with his people, the new relationship that he was forming with them. And towards the end of chapter 5, Moses reminded the people that they'd agreed to this covenant. They'd promised to hear and do all that the Lord spoke to them. And God kind of went, Oh, I wish that were the case. Look with me at the end of chapter 5, verse 29. God is speaking. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. Then speaking to Moses, but you... Stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be, and then Moses speaks here, you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This leads right into chapter 6, which starts with a final introduction to the law. Moses had said similar before, but see if you can notice God's heart behind these words. Look with me in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the law, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. If you're a parent, why do you make rules for your kids? If, if you're not a parent, just think of the rules that your parents made for you. Do parents make rules just to make life miserable for their kids? Sometimes we might think so, but no, right? Good parents make rules for the good and well-being of their children. We may want to protect them. Don't run into the street or don't climb up on the roof. Never thought I would need that one, but... We may want to train them, stay seated while you're eating, or say excuse me after you burp. We want things to go well for them, to, to, with other people and society, and of course with God. We make rules because we love our kids and we want them to turn out well. God does the same. He gave commands not to make people miserable or to restrict them, but because he loved them and he wanted them to be blessed and protected and happy. And the commandments were a sign of God's goodness. And that is essential to see. I, thought, I think it's also easy to see in this passage. Think about it. Moses keeps mentioning the promised land. Why? What's the big deal about the land? Well, part of the answer is that the land was a sign of God's goodness to them. This was a, a gracious blessing from God. It was a good land, flowing with milk and honey. Moses also keeps mentioning long life. 
well-being, multiplication of your descendants, milk and honey, prosperity, all of which would come from God. Every good and perfect gift is from Him. And all these were based on God's promises to His people, as it said in verse 3. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. These verses are are oozing with reminders of God's goodness and grace. And the point is, the Lord's goodness should motivate perpetual obedience. The Lord's goodness should motivate perpetual or continual, ongoing obedience. Moses was given the role of teacher here. He was to teach, they were to learn. And once they learned, they were to do the laws that he told them. As it said in verse 1, These are the, this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them. It's not overly different from the role that Jesus gave his disciples in the Great Commission, is it? They were to make more disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded them. As disciples, we are to learn and grow. That's part of who we are. And then we're to pass on what we learn, multiplying disciples. Notice, God obviously wants us to learn to follow his commands. Right? He isn't sitting up in heaven like a, a bad teacher who's trying to flunk us out of the class. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to do well. He wants us to flourish. So, his people shouldn't obey out of a fear of failure or out of a dread of God's judgment. We should want to obey out of the promise of blessing. It's positive motivation, not a negative one. There's a place for warnings, yes. In fact, this chapter is going to have some later on. But our first motivation should be to pursue the good that God is holding out for us. God is good. Chris Wright comments that the emphasis on motivational factors is almost overwhelming in this short passage. Five times we read, so that or that. The stakes were high. The rewards were great. The blessing and promise were in place. But obedience was the heart of the matter. Not that obedience would earn such a blessing. The lush future in the land will be theirs because of God's faithfulness to the promise made to their forefathers. It was a gift of grace, but to be appropriated and enjoyed through obedience. God's promise to them came long before the law was ever given. Centuries even. Right? And this was always God's pattern. It always is. He exceedingly gives before he expectantly commands. He exceedingly gives before he expectantly commands. Just as he, he gives us abundant blessings in Christ and in the gospel and promises before he saves us and then expects us to act as saved people. But let's look quickly at a, a couple of the blessings that Moses promises the people here. Verse 2 says, Do all this that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. Fearing God is actually seen as an incentive here. It's a desirable goal for people. But fear is usually seen as a negative emotion, right? So that might confuse you. Why would we want to fear God? 
That doesn't sound fun. Well, when we're talking about fearing God, we're not talking about fright or terror. Fearing God is almost synonymous with worshiping God, with living for God. It's deeply related to having reverence for who God is and then obeying what God says. And living in these ways is the path to blessing guaranteed. And not fearing God is what originally led to the fall of man. It's what leads to our sin every day. Uh, at a zoo in Florida this week, a two-year-old girl fell into a cage of rhinos. She wasn't stabbed, but she was knocked over and injured by one of them. And if it wasn't for her father leaping to her aid and pulling her back through the bars, the outcome could have been a lot worse. But if the dad hadn't appropriately feared the rhinos, he wouldn't have even bothered to save her, right? It wasn't that the, the rhinos were bad. Everyone was enjoying them behind bars. But they weren't tame, right? They were powerful, and they could be deadly. Listen, God is not tame. He, he is perfectly controlled, yes, but not by us. He has all the power. And if we trifle with him or we disrespect him or we dismiss him, it could be deadly. But, but all the, the blessings that await someone who appropriately fears him and thus obeys him. God wants this, this fear of the Lord perpetuated, so obedience is perpetuated from generation to generation to generation, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. Notice, they could fear God by keeping his statutes and commandments. But, but the goal here was this ongoing generational way of life, passed on to kids and grandkids and so on. And this way of life was definitely meant to be enjoyed. Why bring up long life, well-being, multiplication, milk and honey, all these things? It's, it's like it says in verse 2, which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. The NIV says explicitly that you may enjoy long life. In verse 3, hear therefore, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Scholars say that the reference to milk and honey gives a picture of a fertile land uh, with abundant rain, good soil, a, a robust population of people or animals to, to work the land, enjoy its bounty. God was no spoil sport. Right? All the other paths besides his would lead to spoiling of the blessings, but not his. If they carefully obeyed, all this would be theirs, blessings of obedience by God's grace. We probably think, though, obviously these blessings that Moses is talking about here don't really apply to us. We're not walking into Canaan tomorrow we're not guaranteed long life. True. 
However, the blessings for obedience in our new covenant tend to be even greater than these. Right, right, think, we still have the blessing of fearing God these days, but now we have God's Spirit inside of us to help us do so. We, and through the Spirit, we are given love, joy, peace, patience, so much more, things that we can enjoy in this life. We may end up with some short-term trials, but we have an eternity of blessings that are promised us. Jesus himself promises in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Full joy. It's a blessing of obedience. So the question is, when God speaks to you through his word, are you obeying? When, God, when God's word convicts you of sin, are you repenting? When God's word commands you to forgive, to pray, to give, to go, are you doing so? When God's word challenges you in your, in your comfort zone or your luxury? Are you laying down your life for the sake of Christ? God has been so good to you. And he promises to forever be good. So obey because of that. At this point you may be thinking, Pastor Matt, you said that today we're going to see the heart of what God wants from us. But is obedience really what he wants more than anything else? Well, kind of, not really. No, we haven't gotten to the most important thing yet. However, if we do what God says is most important, what he most wants, obedience will be the natural byproduct. It will happen. All this instruction about God's goodness and obedience is really just the preface to Moses' main point. I like to imagine his voice getting louder at this point to a near shout. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now we're going to dig a lot deeper there. I'm going to first give you the big idea, though. The Lord's oneness, the Lord's oneness should motivate comprehensive love, right? The Lord's oneness should motivate an exclusive, pervasive, comprehensive love in us. Now, these verses are very possibly the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. They, are, they not only communicate the heart of God's moral law, but they communicate the identity of God himself. And this came to be known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear used at the beginning. Hear, O Israel. Listen up. Everyone in Israel, hear this and respond accordingly. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, that, say, that statement there contains only four words. Yahweh, 
Elohim, or our God, Yahweh, one. What does that mean exactly? Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. The most likely interpretation is Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Okay, which it implies the uniqueness, the exclusive worship of Yahweh. There's another suggestion which would say there's only one version of God and only one faith and orthodoxy that can come from his identity. Either way, God's uniqueness, his incomparability, his singularity are all likely hinted at here. Now this verse may biblically prove monotheism to an extent, but that wasn't its point. Daniel Block explains it this way. He says, the purpose of this statement is not to answer the question, how many is God, but who is the God of Israel? To this question, the Israelites were to respond in unison and without compromise or equivocation, our God is Yahweh, Yahweh alone. By uttering the Shema, the Israelites were declaring their complete, undivided, and unqualified devotion to Yahweh. Another scholar, Chris Wright, says the purpose of Deuteronomy, that's the whole book, the purpose of Deuteronomy is not to posit the singularity of deity, but to define the character of deity. God is God as revealed in Yahweh. It is vital to see that in Old Testament terms, it is Yahweh who defines what monotheism means, not a concept of monotheism that defines how Yahweh should be understood. Now that is deep, but it's crucial. So read it again if you have to. Before giving any actual laws, Moses understood the importance of identifying the lawgiver. Because their identity as a people would be wrapped up in this. It would be rooted in who their God was. And above all other possible descriptions of God, he knew they needed to know that God was God alone. He is it. God defined what it meant to even be God. They, they couldn't bring their own ideas or theories to the table. They couldn't assume that, that God fit their own ideas, their own wishes, or assume things about God, that maybe that he was never angry or always angry, that he was distant from them, inactive in their lives, that he could take many forms depending on where they were or how they felt, that he didn't maybe care much about sin, that he is only holy, not love, or only love, not holy. Just as we cannot define who God is, He sets the definition. He is the definition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And by the way, he hasn't changed since then, and he never will. Zechariah 14, 9 echoes this verse when looking to the future, and it prophesies, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And in case you think this all changed under Jesus, think again. Jesus didn't make three gods. All right, there's still only one God. 1 Corinthians 8 says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And notice there, Jesus is unquestionably identified as the one Lord over all. Who's that? Yahweh. The same Lord our God took on flesh and died and rose. So, hear, O new Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You may ask, well, how should God's oneness motivate our love? Let me ask a different question in answering that. If the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, created us, loved us, left heaven's glory for us, died for us, rose again from the dead, and dwells us by his Spirit, saves us, frees us, forgives us, cleanses us, transforms us, gives us a new heart, a new purpose, sets us on a course for eternal life, and is coming back for us. How could we give anything or anyone else our utmost affection? He's the only one. It's unthinkable that we should do anything but love him. And thus the, the greatest commandment ever given is also the highest privilege. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now we're not talking about some mushy, sentimental kind of love there. Neither are we talking about just obedience and loyalty, though that is likely implied as part of this. This love is it's more than just emotion because it can be commanded of people. But he doesn't just say, you shall be loyal to God or obey God. He intentionally says, love God. So there is an emotional side of it, a relational side, a passionate side to this. But really, trying to figure out which part of us that we're supposed to love God with is pointless. Because the point really is that we're to love him with a comprehensive love, all-encompassing love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, I've heard this command countless times in my life, but I actually learned something new this time around studying it. You know the difference between your heart and your soul and your might? Not sure if I did. But your heart is basically your inner being. Who you are on the inside, including your mind. It's the invisible spiritual side of you. The, the seat of your intellect, your will, and your intention. Your soul here, yeah, it refers to something a little bit different than we usually use soul to talk about. The soul here uses a word that refers to life or desire or a whole self, including your body actually. Essentially, the soul is talking about your entire person, 
spirit and body, your life. And then might or strength is talking about any power that you exert in your life. It's a word that could literally be translated as all your very muchness. It can signify intensity. It's like love exceedingly or love greatly. And from my understanding in, in studying this, essentially saying to love God with everything you have and everything that you do, all your energies, your influence, your resources, your physical strength, your economic strength, your social strength, even your, your tools, occupation, home, possessions, your wealth. So, notice, Moses starts with the most internal and then moves to the most external. He's, he's progressing out in concentric circles from your heart to your soul to your might. Daniel Block says this well, Calling all Israelites to love God without reservation or qualification, Moses begins with the inner being, then moves to the whole person, and ends with all that one claims as one's own. This was a covenant commitment rooted in the heart, but extending to every level of one's being. Let me ask you this question. Do you love the Lord? You love him like this? Be careful in answering that question. Because it's a, it's a massive claim. And if you truly love the Lord, it will have an impact on every area of your life. From what you say, what you listen to, what you watch, what you wear to where you go, what you spend your time on, your money on, to whom you're close to, even to how you feel, to, to how you eat and sleep and work and play. Throughout the Bible, people were extremely reluctant to ever claim that they loved the Lord. You'll hardly find it anywhere. Loving God was more something to just do and prove than to claim to have. So, you want to love God? Then, then love God. Loyally worship Him. Serve Him. Obey Him. Give Him all of yourself. Offer it all to Him. And this was neither arrogant of God to command or burdensome for us to obey. As Ajith Fernando says, when God asks us to love him with our whole being, he has our own welfare in mind. It's like a command to a hungry person to eat a delicious meal. Once we've experienced God's love and know what a wonderful thing it is, a command to total love would not be viewed as a burdensome, burdensome obligation. Really, any kind of true love demands this kind of total devotion, does it not? If I told my wife that, you know, my, my might, my strength loves you today, but my heart's just not in it, it would not go well for me. <laughs> to love God means to love with everything, comprehensively. Some of us may feel, sure, this is a, this is a good thing, a great thing to do, but it's got to be impossible. Oh. Yeah, kind of. It is impossible for us to keep this law perfectly. 
In fact, I believe Jesus made this very point in Luke 10 oh, when a lawyer came up to test him. And the guy asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you understand it? And the guy starts quoting this. He's like, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yes, correct. Do that and you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Do you get what Jesus is saying? Then you do this, you'll have eternal life. You, if you can keep, if you can follow the greatest commandments perfectly, you can save yourself. What comes right after that is telling, though. It says, the lawyer, but the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, if he could earn salvation by following the law, why would he need to justify himself? It's, new, it's because he knew that there was no way on earth he could love God so completely. And like him, we too have fallen woefully short of this standard. Which is why it is really good news that Jesus came. Not only telling us and confirming that this is important, but actually living it. Actually loving God with his entire heart, soul, and might. He did what we could not do. And then he traded places with us. If we accept the trade. So have you? Is Jesus your substitute? Your righteousness? Your Savior? He's the only one. Now, all that said, just because we can't follow this perfectly doesn't mean we can't obey it at all. Moses views this command as totally doable. And it's Paul's prayer in Philippians 1 that our love, which exists obviously, our love would abound more and more until the day that we're perfected in glory with Christ. So it should be our joy to see our love for God and for one another both growing and increasingly taking over our lives. And that's how Moses is going to finish his point off for today. It should be spreading everywhere in our lives. Like, like glitter at Christmas. Just getting into every nook and cranny everywhere. Look how Moses says in verse 6. says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They shall be inside of you, on your heart. If we love God comprehensively, what he says will change us from the inside out. And this command actually becomes rather glorious under Christ as the Lord promised through Jeremiah, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God has already done this inside of us if we follow Christ. Jesus has written his law on our hearts. But it's not just the inner person 
that God's love should permeate. It's our every waking moment in every place and arena of life. Look in verse 7. He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, something you fasten on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is where the love of the whole person is expanded to the whole community. Now, verse 7 is often quoted to parents about the, the principles for raising your kids. Rightly so. But it really has something to say to everyone. In any home, any family, you don't need kids to make loving God in every minute and every place priority. To paraphrase verse 7 for 2019, it might say something like, you shall teach them diligently to your kids and, and talk about them when you're lounging around at home, eating meals, or on your phones, when you're driving around town, or riding the bus, or walking down the sidewalk, when you're getting ready for bed, when you get up in the morning, permeate your life with God's Word. You also don't need kids to make impressing these things on the next generation a priority. Many of you single or, or childless people here are already making a huge impact on them by being a, a godly aunt or uncle or a neighbor or working in kids' ministry. You're making a difference. Don't be afraid to talk about the things of God with kids. They need it. But if you do have kids, the onus is especially on you to do this with your children. Fill your days and your, your kids' days with God using whatever means are at your disposal. Give uh, Kids, listen, if your parents are not doing this, I give you permission to challenge them on it. I may uh, regret saying that, but <laughs> give them ideas. Think of things. Give them ideas for how might, you might talk about God more often in your home, in your family. And this verse isn't saying that, that you need to, exclusive times are set aside for this, though that's good to do. It's saying that to seize whatever little moments or opportunities you have throughout the day to, to talk about God, to, about His ways, to, to love God more, to grow your love. And, and parents, if you're not doing this, humble yourselves and get to work says do this diligently. You have a, a huge responsibility to, to regularly talk about God in your home throughout the normal ebb and flow of your day to, to pass on your love for God. And if you're not willing to do that, ask yourself if you have that love in the first place. If you're already doing this, seeking to do it, bravo. Do it some more. Do it even more. Make it inescapable in your life. Get creative. There, there are so many resources that we have at our fingertips these days for how you can do this. Ask yourself, though, what is your greatest desire for your children? 
What is your greatest desire for your children? There was a survey taken a few years ago which asked parents how they would know if they'd been successful in parenting. Top three answers were raising kids that are happy, raising kids that had good values, and raising kids that were successful in their vocations. Timothy Paul Jones comments on this survey. He says, if this survey rightly represents parents' real priorities, fathers and mothers are focused on raising children who act good, feel good, and attain financial success. Morality, happiness, and success aren't bad, of course, but they're miserable goals for parenting. None of these values last past this life. And if children were a gift for this life only, it might make sense to raise children with calendars that are full, but souls that are empty, making them captives of the deadly delusion that their value depends on what they accomplish here and now. But the gospel calls us to seek a purpose for our children that is so much larger than this life. I don't do this perfectly, of course, but every night that I'm able to help tuck my kids in bed, I, I pray with them. And it's easy, you know, to, when you're praying to get really rote prayers, hab- habitual prayers, saying the same thing, not necessarily thinking about what you're saying. But there's one that I know every time I pray very sincerely. And I pray that they would come to love God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's like, I can't manufacture this in their life. and I need a work of God in their heart. I have no greater desire for my kids because there can be no greater good for them. And listen, if you, if you have kids that have wandered away from this, this could be your only recourse to pray. Pray diligently their souls. Weep for them before the throne of God. This is the greatest outcome for our kids, that they would love God with everything they are. We need to to pass our love of God on to the next generation. We also need it ourselves, right? Hence the instructions to remind ourselves constantly. In verse 8 and 9, it says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These were creative visual aids meant to display the word of God all around life. Whether figurative or literal, these were ways of saying, let God's ways be evident in everything you do. And whatever you do, have God's ways in view. Let others see this too. Let your private life and your public life be shaped by God's ways. That's the houses and the gates, private and public. It's like, listen, listen to the word on your phone. Get it in your ears, on your life. Wear the badge, fly the flag, decorate your houses. It's like George Athens explains, these are deliberately over-the-top statements designed to encourage Israel to go all out in following Yahweh's law, leaving no aspect of life uninfluenced. You catch that? Leaving no aspect of life uninfluenced. Now, you don't have to do all these exact things in your life. But here's the question. What are you doing to make sure though you and those around you are constantly reminded? Reminded of, of what God desires. Reminded of his word. 
reminded of his grace. Chris Wright asked the question, it's like, I wonder if we will be any more successful than they were in, in flavoring our life with God's ways. You've likely heard at some point someone say something to the effect of, faith is to be a private matter. So you do your own thing, but keep your thoughts to yourself and keep me out of it. God doesn't say anything of the sort, by the way. Yes, love for God starts in the privacy of your heart, but then it goes public, as all true love must. Daniel Block says, True spirituality arises from the heart and extends to all of life. Those who claim to be religious tend to be subject to two temptations. Okay, either to treat spirituality as primarily interior and private, or to treat it as a matter of external performance. True love for God is rooted in the heart, but it is demonstrated in life, specifically a passion to speak of one's faith in the context of the family and to declare one's allegiance publicly to the world. So I ask you again, do you love the Lord our God and him alone? And if so, do you love him enough to pass it on? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please build this love in us. It is beyond us. We need your spirit to work in us. So would you do that even now? Start a new work in us that we would grow in your ways, grow in our devotion to you, grow in our passion for you, and grow in the way that we pass this on to those around us. For you are worthy and you are good. Keep that at the forefront of our eyes and our vision today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.